Amen. Thank you, worship team, for leading us there. Well, this morning we are continuing our series, Red Letter Words, where we've been looking more specifically at the Gospel of Matthew for how Jesus describes himself to us, what he says his mission here is, and the reason he came to this earth, what he says about himself, right? And today we're coming to Matthew chapter 10, where Jesus equips and sends out the 12 apostles, his disciples that have been following him, and he gives them the same ministry that he has been living in. And so as we look at this text today, as we kind of walk through some of these pieces, I want us to ask three questions and try to answer them. As we read through the message and the mission that Jesus gave to his disciples, I want us to understand what is our mission, how can we expect this mission to look, or what should our mission look like, and how do we actually fulfill that mission? How do we get there? What helps us along the way? So as we walk throughout this story today, we're going to try to answer those three questions, but if you have your Bibles with you this morning, uh, turn with me to Matthew. We'll be starting in chapter 9, very close to chapter 10 there, starting at verse 35, Uh, chapter 9, verse 35. And Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go, rather, to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. We're going to skip down to verse 34, chapter 10, verse 34, and then we'll read to the end of the chapter there. Verse 34, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to this earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me, and anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, Truly, I tell you, the person will certainly not lose their reward. Amen. In the past few weeks, we've been walking through the the Sermon on the Mount, more specifically in Matthew, where Jesus shares what his kingdom looks like here on earth, and he redefines for us how to understand 
who he is and what he has come to do in this world. And all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus shares things that seem quite backwards to us, seem kind of flipped upside down to our sense of ethics and morality, right? So he says, you have heard it said, hate your enemy and love your neighbor, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, right? Don't, don't judge or condemn others in your anger or look at them in lust, but forgive them as often as they offend you. That's pretty easy stuff, right? You should be laughing a little more than that. That's... <laughs> I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. But, but today's teaching is very similar, right? Some of the things that we just read aren't very simple things to follow through. It's not as though the call Jesus gives us is, you know, go and it will be easy and I will always lead the way in front of you, right? It seems backwards. He even says, Jesus says, you will be handed over to local councils and flogged. All men will hate you because of me, right? I did not come to bring peace but a sword. The Prince of Peace didn't come to bring peace. Anyone who loves his father or mother or child more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. All of these things, right, again, are pretty easy to follow. But we know it's possible. We know the call he gives us is a a possible one to live through because Jesus sends out his 12 disciples on their mission, and right before that, Jesus describes to us his own mission, right? He came preaching the good news, healing the sick, seeking the lost, casting out demons, and proclaiming his kingdom. And now, after modeling it for his disciples, he sends them out with the same authority to cast out demons, to proclaim the kingdom is coming, is near, right? To go to the lost sheep of Israel. Jesus models for us the work that he's called us and invited us into, And we are invited to participate with him in that work. So, what is our mission then? Because Jesus gave this mission pretty specifically to the 12 apostles. But what can we understand from this is our mission, right? To search for the Holy Grail and to use its power for control over people? No. (laughs) Thankfully, right, we are not given a task or a quest to go on, but a lifestyle to model. Does that make sense? We're not given a quest to go on. We're not called to go and retrieve the Holy Grail or some sword from another country. We are called to model a lifestyle that Jesus has given us. Right? And we find an answer for this in Ephesians 2.10. I'm sure some of the kids have this uh, memorized. They've shared with me a couple memory verses. But we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do the good works which God has prepared in advance for us to do. And I like that, that workmanship. It's... it's more specific to a masterpiece, a, a specific work of art, not just a mass-produced thing, but something that is with intention and thought put into it. And we are called, as his masterpieces, to do the work he's created for us. Do you see what that means? That all of us have been sent, every single one of us, whether you've just come to know Christ or whether you've known him your whole life, all of us have a specific role in the work that God is inviting us into in this world that only we can fulfill as well, right? It's not just our skills and our talents that God uses in our, mer- in our mission and purpose. It's our failures. God uses our successes. God uses our race, our gender, our age, all to play a role in the mission that he has for you and for me specifically. All of these things equip you to do the work that he's called you to do which means there are some needs that only you can fulfill. 
The work is there. All we need to do is step out, though, right? We, like the disciples, have been sent to this world with a mission. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. And because God has reconciled us to himself, he's given us the ministry of reconciliation, right? To reunite people and to point them back to God. So we not only have a role for us, one that has been prepared in advance and specific to you, it's also work that points others back to God, back to our Creator. How awesome is that? But throughout our journey as believers, we often sink back into the places where we see our work as a means to earn our righteousness. We do works for the sake of being good enough, right? Our walk with God becomes more of a religion to follow than a relationship to enjoy. And this religion of Christianity, the religion of Christianity, says that God paid the price for your sins so that you could try really hard to be a good Christian, right? You could work really hard to earn your own righteousness. That's what the religion says, but the relationship that Jesus invites us into is he said, I paid the price so that you could be in relationship with me. That's why I have come. And the difference between those two views, this religion versus relationship, is a lot like the difference between a business relationship and a lover's relationship. Right? A business relationship is marked by transactions. Right? I do this, you give me this. Right? God paid the cost for your sins right, so that you can try really hard to be good enough to be accepted by him. But... A relationship between lovers, right? There's no transactions, right? There's nothing owed, but rather it's, it's a joy to share, right? If something amazing happens in your life, the first thing you want to do is share it with someone who loves you and you love in return. There's nothing owed. It's a relationship between lovers is also a place of security and strength, right? For lovers, it's your sense of confidence of who you are. Your lover sees you naked in every way in emotional, mental, spiritual, physical, and knowing all these things, they still choose to love you, seeing and knowing all your faults, which gives you confidence, right? This is the type of relationship that Jesus invites us into, one where he knows us and sees us completely and loves us. Not one of transactions and settling the score, but one of strength and security that we can rely on we are welcomed into his kingdom as children. We run to him for comfort. We find our strength and security in his embrace. That is the type of relationship that Jesus offers us. One where we're known and loved as his child and given a work that only we can fulfill. So, then the next question is, how do we even discover that work? How do we know what that specific work is to us? And I would say that it's through compassion. In the passage that we just read, Jesus is motivated to step forwards by compassion, seeing that they were sheep without a shepherd. And we see this all throughout Scripture. In Luke chapter 7, verse 13, we see the story of a funeral procession where a widow is following the coffin of her only child. And Jesus sees this, and it says in verse 13 that when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. And from this story, we get the raising of the widow's son, the resurrection of this man. When, when Jesus heard that his cousin John the Baptist was beheaded by Herod, he wanted to withdraw to a private place off to his own, but the crowds followed him there. He was important, and instead of being angry with him, with them, Matthew 14 says that when Jesus saw the large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. 
Hebrews 12 verse 2 says that Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. It was compassion and joy that carried Jesus to these very real and difficult places. And likewise, it is compassion and joy that can be our guides as well. Jesus has promised suffering in our work. There's no doubt about that. But he has also promised that the suffering in, that we face in this life will not even be worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed one day. So what direction is your heart pulled into action through compassion? What places of life into the needs of those around you, your family, the community? Because that's a good indicator as to the places God is calling you to. Where are you driven by joy and compassion to serve? Right? And how much better life is when we serve in the place of compassion and joy instead of a monotonous burden to just simply do everything and make this world a better place. Right? The life that Jesus offers us is marked with compassion and joy. All we need to do is pick up our crosses and follow him. It's a very easy thing to do, I realize once again. But our role is to be citizens of this kingdom, to be like our Father who has lovingly adopted us into his kingdom. Our role is not to build the kingdom. We do not build God's kingdom. And it's a Christianese saying, I'm sure some of you have heard it before, but it's important to recognize that our work is not building the kingdom, right? In Matthew 6.33, we seek the kingdom. In Mark 10.15, we receive the kingdom. We seek it, receive it. We are citizens of the kingdom in Philippians 3 verse 20, but we are not in charge of building the kingdom. That is God's work and his alone. And one problem we face as believers is falling into the belief that his kingdom is built through us, that we are in charge of making sure the kingdom advances in this world. I like the way one commentator put it. He said, it is beyond our ability to enthrone Jesus in the hearts of others. Our role, our mission, our work is not to force people to believe the good news. Neither does that actually advance the kingdom. It is only Jesus who builds his kingdom through the Spirit working actively in us, through the Word of God and our lives working. It's not an inanimate book, right? It is living and active and it divides even to the very soul. Our role is not to build the kingdom, but to point towards it, to point towards the work that has been done in you and me, to witness the kingdom work. So we share how the kingdom has made a difference in our lives through our testimony. We point to God's kingdom through the work of the Spirit done in us, through the fruit of the Spirit, as we show love, as we show patience, kindness. We don't even build the kingdom in our own lives, though. We're not the ones who began that work. Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still turning our backs on him and going the other direction, even running that way, that was the moment at which Jesus chose to pay the price for our sins. We fight against the purpose that he has for us. We've even chosen everything but Jesus in our lives. Right? 1 John chapter 4 puts it like this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Do you see that we are accepted by Jesus on the basis of the work that he has done, on the basis of him bringing his kingdom to us, not that we have built it in our own lives, not that we're working hard enough for it to be done, but we are called to be citizens of this kingdom, to be daughters and sons in his reign. 
Not that the kingdom completely depends on us in order to be built, though. I like this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a Christian during the Second World War. He said, But it is not we who build the church. He, Christ, wills to build the church. No man builds the church but Christ alone. Whoever is minded to build the church is surely well on the way to destroying it, for he will build a temple to idols, and without wishing or knowing it, we must confess that he builds. We must proclaim he builds. We must pray to him he builds. We do not know his plan. We cannot see whether he's building or pulling down. It may be that it may be that the times by which human standards are times of collapse are for him the times of greatest building. It may be that the times from which a human point of view are the great times for the church are times when it's really being pulled down. It is a great comfort for which Christ gives his church. You confess, preach, bear witness to me, and I alone will build when it pleases me. Do not meddle in what is my province. The mission that Jesus has given us is motivated by compassion and by joy. And this mission that we go on when we go to build the kingdom instead is driven by fear of being punished. It's worry that you're not doing it right or being good enough. And so we do the right thing, but in the wrong way at times. And that's usually a good indicator that Jesus isn't ultimate in your life. There's something else that's taking that place of ultimateness, something that gives you that worth or satisfaction or sense of righteousness, that sense of being good enough that you don't have to turn to Jesus, your Savior. Something that we put else as ultimate in our lives will eventually become an idol. Right? Giving to others is a good thing. We're called to good, be givers and share with what we have, but if it's an ultimate purpose in your life, then you're going to start to become angry with everyone else who doesn't give as much as you do. Right? Working hard is a good thing. We're called to work with all our might as unto the Lord. But if your labor is ultimate in your own life, it'll become a tool that you use to shame and guilt others. God doesn't ask you to make your work an idol so that you can neglect your kids and control your spouse. Right? He doesn't ask you to make a relationship with a person your ultimate purpose because then you place them on a pedestal that they'll inevitably fall down from. God has invited us to make him ultimate in our lives, to make him our ultimate goal, our ultimate mission, the ultimate love that we pursue in this world. And from that place, we can enjoy the lightness of his burden and step into the mission that he has for us. But our role is not to build the kingdom, which is also relieving because it means then that our role is simply to be obedient to what Jesus calls us to. It seems a little bit more hopeful in that place then. We're not in charge of making sure the kingdom is built in people's lives. We simply take step forwards in the ways and directions that Jesus is leading us, showing love and compassion, not that we are the ones saving people. Colossians 3.23 says, We work with all our heart as working unto the Lord. We put our hands to the plow. We plant seeds along the way. But our work is not to make the seeds sprout, but to plant seeds to go in the direction Jesus calls us. Like in, in 1 Corinthians, Paul explains a really helpful analogy of this. He says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. He recognizes that we each, yes, have do different calls and roles in the kingdom that he is bringing to us. However, it is not to, to make things grow, it is simply to go forwards to spread seeds. So when we fall into the mindset of it's up to us that the kingdom is built, we go back to a business type of relationship with God based on transactions of being good enough. 
going on the quest to search for the Holy Grail. But Jesus didn't invite us into relationship for the sole purpose of making us work. Yes, he has invited us to good work that we can enjoy in participation with him, but he invites us into relationship so that we can be in relationship with him. That's the point, right? To know him, to focus on him, to abide in him, and to follow him in the ways that he invites us to step out into this world. Which also means, another good point of this, is that the only qualification of success in our obedience to Jesus is whether or not we actually obey. Success isn't the outcome of whatever happens. Success is whether or not we live in obedience to Jesus. The prophet Jeremiah, he was called to preach to a nation who God told him would not listen to his message. God said this, when you tell them all this, when you give them the words that I'm speaking to you, they will not listen to you. When you call to them, they will not answer. But Jeremiah was still called to go and preach. His role, his mission was to go, to step out. And Jesus may call us to do things that from our perspective are complete failures. But again, the success is in our obedience, not in the outcome. We can be successful if we live in obedience to who Jesus is. And we live in obedience by remaining in him, by abiding. Right? In fact, we can't even do anything good without him. John 15 verse 5 says, If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit, but apart from me you can do nothing. Even the good things that we try to do aren't good. Are you bearing fruit? Would people describe you as someone who characterizes the fruits of the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit. Remember that God has work for us, right? And the burden that he offers us is one that is easy and a yoke that is light. And when we take our eyes off of Jesus, our lives become busy with the things that we believe are important. When really we're just becoming busier and busier as a means of earning our own righteousness. And if we do all these things, then the voice of condemnation goes away. Right? We make ourselves good enough in his eyes, by our own standards, then we can be accepted. But Jesus... Never ask us to take on more than we actually have time for. Right? He isn't the one who overbooks our schedules and then gets angry at others when we feel the pressure of that. So in the moments when you are tempted to fall back into the business relationship with Jesus, remain in him. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, by bringing your thoughts back to Jesus and the work that he's done in your life, who he is. So that is our mission to live in obedience to Jesus, not to make sure success is the outcome, but to go into the places he's calling us to. But more than just describing our mission in this section here, Jesus also tells us what we should expect in our obedience to him. Two things, that we will be offensive to others and that we will face suffering. Right? The kind of life that Jesus offers, he promises us there will be suffering. I mean, just look at how the 12 apostles died, right? Jesus, or John, sorry, was exiled to an island. Bartholomew, James, and Matthias were beheaded. Uh, Thomas and Matthew were likely speared to death. And the other half of those disciples, uh, Peter, Andrew, Jude, Simon, and James, they were all crucified. Yes, the suffering Jesus tells us to expect along the way is real and horrific, but I also want to point out something else, that in the same way that Jesus went with joy, or went to the cross with the joy set before him, so did the apostles. 
right? They saw the truth of how worthwhile it was to follow Jesus, even to the point of death in their own lives, right? Many of them were martyred because they continued to profess faith in Jesus, which is one of the greatest evidences we have today of the fact that Jesus actually walked this earth and was resurrected, right? Many of them were martyred because of these things, that these 12 men who came from no noble background would not, would not give up their belief in Jesus even as they faced the worst forms of torture, right? If they were just making up these stories of some man, if they were just making these random claims, they wouldn't follow it unto their deaths, but they found something that is worth far more than the pain of torture could ever take away, right? Something that was worth sacrificing everything they had in order to attain, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. There will be suffering, but in Jesus, there is no suffering that will not be redeemed to a beauty that we cannot fathom here on this earth. Jesus also tells us to expect to offend others on top of the suffering, not purposefully offensive for the sake of turning others away by using improper or rude language, but offensive in the same way that Jesus was offensive by pointing out the brokenness in people and asking them to submit themselves to him. Right? It, is, it is offensive to be told that you are broken. None of us like that. None of us like our faults and problems being pointed out in life. We cannot cope with the fact that we are broken. Right? In fact, all of us try to cover it up in some way, just like Adam and Eve did as they stood in the garden naked and unashamed until the point of their sin that made them feel exposed. They were bare before God and others, and so they covered up their nakedness. Are, are you still trying to hide your sin from God and others? Are you tired of hiding the broken parts of your life in order to be acceptable to others? Right? Because Jesus tells us that he sees our nakedness. Right? He sees our depravity at the point of our worst sins, at our furthest location from him, and yet he still loves us and invites each one of us into relationship. Yes, you will suffer, but I will be with you is what he promises. And that is the promise that we rely on in order to fulfill our mission. That is the strength in us that helps us to go there. To remember that he is always with us, trusting that he is working good as he asks us to lay our lives down, to lay everything down for him. I like this story. I just want to share it with you. I read it this past week of a woman who, who grew up in a church only ever hearing that um, God accepts us if we're sufficiently good enough, right? This business transaction relationship with God. And she came to this place in her life where she went to a church where she heard the gospel for the first time, and she said that this new teaching is a scary idea. And she went on to say, oh, it's a good scary, but it's still scary. And when she was asked why, she said, well, if I was saved by my good works, then there'd be a limit on to what God could ask of me or put me through. Right? I'd be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty, and now I deserve a certain quality of life. But if it's really true that I am a sinner saved by sheer grace at God's infinite cost, then there is nothing he cannot ask of me. Right? God loves us deeply, despite our flaws and our faults, and yet we were bought at a price. We are no longer ours, but his. We're children in his kingdom the kingdom of a loving Father who cares for us. If it feels like the mission God has sent you on is far too much, focus once again on his love and the sacrifice he's made for you. 
And as we close, let me remind you of the access we have to the Father, because this is, again, one of the greatest strengths that we have is relationship with Jesus, that we can talk to him, know him. I like this story or this understanding of way, I heard this story a few years back, but let's say that you wanted a cup of water from a king, for instance, let's say King Charles, right? He's the king over the UK and the Commonwealth. Now, unless you Unless he owed you a debt or you tried blackmailing him, there would be no chance of you getting that cup of water from him, right? right? Even if you were to go through the proper measures and talk to the security, it's not like, yes, the king will give you a cup of water, right? Even though you're a citizen in his kingdom, he wouldn't even bat an eye at your request, right? Now, even, even his wife, I would argue, probably wouldn't have the same access to him, right? If, if she asked him for a cup of water, he'd probably just respond, well, you have two legs, can you not get yourself a cup of water, right? In fact, there's only really one person in the entire world or category of people who could ever truly ask for that cup of water from king. It's his child. Right? Even if it's in the middle of the night, his only, only the child could come into his room and ask for a cup of water, and the father would get up and get it for his child. It's the only category of relationship where, where it makes sense for a king to submit himself in this way. Friends, Jesus has invited us into his kingdom, not just as workers. He has given us work, but he's invited us in as children. He has a purpose for you, one that only you can fulfill, and he invites us to know him as our father, the one who we ask for help, the one who we ask for the very real things that we need in the times we need it. Yes, there will be trials and hardship along the way, and yes, others will even hate you as Jesus promised. But Jesus promises as well, I will be with you. I will be all that you need if only you trust me. So let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your great goodness to us. Father, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus, that we might know you in relationship again. Father, not that we have to earn our way to you, not that we've done anything for you to accept us, not that we could do anything for you Father, to love us anymore. But thank you that you have made a way for us to know you. Father, I pray that you would help us to respond to the invitation that you set before us. Father, I pray that you would help us to have the eyes to see the ways you are leading us forwards in compassion just this day. Father, help us to recognize the ways you want us to believe and to understand differently and to be transformed. But Father, we recognize that it is you doing this work in us. And so, Father, we ask and invite that you would do this work in us. Father, help us to have the eyes that you've given us to be able to see, not, Father, to blind ourselves. So, God, we thank you that you've made every way possible for us, and this is through your great love. Amen.